full membership to black workers. At a later meeting, as she looked at the historical structures that would anchor the park, Miss Soskin, the only person of color in the room, saw places of segregation. What part of the park would tell her story, she wondered. Quote, what gets remembered depends on who is in the room doing the remembering. End quote. It's something of a mantra for Miss Soskin, who stayed in that room and at that park and kept talking, first as a community liaison, then as a seasonal tour guide, and since 2007 as a full-time interpretive ranger. In that role, she speaks not to the experience of Rosie the Riveter, but to her own experience. She said, When I became a ranger, I was taking back my own history. Miss Soskin's life has had so many twists and turns it's hard to keep them straight. She's been a suburban mother, anti-war activist, musician, business owner, faculty wife, community advocate, political aide, blogger, and of course a park ranger. She said, quote, I've always pushed out old stuff and made room for the new. She was born Betty Charbonnet in Detroit in 1921. She spent her early years in New Orleans, where her close-knit families, Creole and Cajun roots, ran deep. In 1927, after their home was destroyed in the Great Mississippi Flood, the family moved to a racially mixed neighborhood in Oakland, California, where her father and uncles worked as waiters and Pullman porters, and lived in a tight-knit, socially conservative, devoutly Catholic, Creole world. They were a decade ahead of the war mobilization that would bring millions pouring into California, to work in defense-related industries, including some 500,000 African Americans, largely from the South, in what has been called the largest voluntary westward black migration in American history. For many who came west, the war years brought increased opportunity and rising expectations, which would help fuel the civil rights and women's movements. For Miss Soskin, who had grown up in racially mixed neighborhoods and schools, it also brought her first experiences with overt, formal segregation. When the war started, she took a job in a U.S. Army Air Force's office, where she was surprised to realize she was passing for white. She set the record straight and asked if she could still get her promotion. The answer was no. Quote, I walked out on the U.S. government and told them to shove it. She later wrote in her 2018 memoir, which is called Sign My Name to Freedom. That same week, her husband Mel, a star college athlete who'd enlisted in the Navy, only to be relegated to working as a cook, left the service. She said, quote, he was going to fight for his country, but he found out he could only cook for his country. During the war, Miss Soskin never saw a ship being built as she often relays in her ranger talks, but she vividly remembers the night of July 17, 1944, when an enormous munitions explosion at Port Chicago, about 25 miles from the shipyards, killed 320 people, about two-thirds of them black enlisted men who had been relegated to the dangerous work. Parentheses. One of the worst home-front disasters of the war, it helped spur the desegregation of the military. Earlier that day, she and her husband had hosted a group of black servicemen who were excluded from the segregated USO at a dance party. Were any of them among those killed, she still wonders. 
and even after telling the story umpteen times in her ranger talks, Miss Hoskins seems freshly shocked at what she learned much later. The black enlisted men were buried in a segregated military cemetery. Quote, I didn't know how they pulled the black bodies out from the white bodies, she said, and where would I have gone? After the war, she and Mel went into business for themselves, selling, quote, race records that white stores wouldn't touch, operating a makeshift store out of a window cut in the wall of their Berkeley garage. In 1952, as the business boomed, they moved to Walnut Creek, a seemingly idyllic, idyllic and affluent white suburb east of the hills. They had bought the land via a white friend, and when they moved, they initially received threats. When Miss Hoskin learned that a fundraiser at the local elementary school would include a blackface performer, pardon me, a blackface number performed by the teachers and administrators, she confronted the principal, then sat in the front row, crying the whole time. Later, she became active in social justice causes through the Unitarian Universalist Church, participated in anti-war protests, raised money for the Black Panthers, and served as a delegate for George McGovern at the 1972 Democratic National Convention, representing the very neighbors who had initially rejected her. But she says she hadn't intended to be a trailblazer. Quote, I became an activist simply because of who I was. In her memoir, Miss Soskin writes of the struggles of her light-skinned father, who initially couldn't get a job in California because he wasn't black enough for the railroads and he wasn't white enough to be white. And she has been open about the realities of being a black woman in predominantly white spaces, who often found herself, as she put it, quote, on a bridge interpreting one side for the other. In the early 60s, as an isolated young mother of four in suburbia, she started playing guitar and writing songs, sometimes while ironing. It was a way of dealing with her deteriorating marriage and what she describes as a mental breakdown, but also a vehicle for her evolving political and racial consciousness. The Internet is awash with her interviews, but her music is harder to find. During my visit, her da daughter, Diara, played a recording of a much younger Betty singing on a local radio program. The first song, Little Boy Black, she explains on the recording, was written during a very angry black period when she was, quote, deeply involved in black nationalism. Her voice is whispery and sweet, the lyrics biting. As the tape rolled into a second song, a delicately jazzy black is beautiful meditation called Ebony the Night, Miss Soskin's eyes welled in tears as we listened. She had passed up various offers to start a professional career, she said, and after she moved to Berkeley in the early 70s and married Bill Soskin, an eminent psychology professor, she put her songs away in a box. If there was a moment when her full self came back out of the box, she says, it was 1987, when her father and two ex-husbands died within three months of each other. I had always been defined by the men in my life, she said. I was devastated. Then all of a sudden I stepped out, and I've been spinning around in space ever since. I didn't really know who I was until then. A few years earlier, as Mel's health declined, she had taken over Reed's records, rescuing it from the verge of bankruptcy. 
It closed permanently in 2019, parentheses. She became a force in the community, advocating new housing and other efforts to revive the then-blighted area. Next came the job with the state legislator, through that the park, and the chance to wage what she has called, quote, a federally funded revolution, from the Visitor Center's basement theater. Miss Oskin has often spoken of the power of putting on the park ranger uniform. Today, less than 7% of National Park Service personnel are black, and the message that seeing her in it sends to little girls of color and others who might not see the national parks as inclusive for them. She said, quote, So many opportunities are tied to uniforms. Uniforms have dictated so much of what black people wear. Over her fireplace hangs a painting of her maternal great-grandmother, Leontine Bro Allen, who was born enslaved in 1846 and died three years after World War II at 102. Leontine, Leontine had worked as a midwife, as well as an assistant to a circuit-riding doctor who came through St. James Parish, Louisiana, every three months, when she would hang a white towel in front of houses where attention was needed. For all her accolades, Miss Soskin sees herself, like Leontine, as another helper dedicated to, quote, draping symbolic white towels over imaginary gateposts. And what would she like her own great-grandchildren to remember about her? She said, quote, that she was honest. The only way for me to really be able to live in this world is to deal with it truthfully. And I want to spell her name in case you're interested to look up any of her um, interviews, for instance, on the Internet. It's Betty, B-E-T-T-Y, Reed, R-E-I-D, Soskin, S-O-S-K-I-N. Our final article comes out of Savannah, um, CBS17.com, for their Black History Month specials. Savannah's oldest existing black motorcycle club creates a lasting legacy. They're written by Kim Gusby, published January 27th this year. Wind in their face, emblems on their backs, and the open road ahead. I feel like a rock star. Respect, love, loyalty, we have it all, said James Maintenance, Maintenance, pardon me, Maintenance, Sims. <laughs> For nearly half a century, the soulful riders have cruised highways and byways near and far. Although black motorcycle clubs have been around for decades across the country, this band of brothers is one of the oldest existing groups in the state. Quote, this club coming out of the civil rights era, the 60s, 70s, right on up until now, I wanted something to basically mirror my people, said Isaac Chico Griffin founder and national commander of the Soulful Riders Motorcycle Club. He went on, quote, And soulful during that time, anything that involved soul was mentioning black people. So us being black people, soulful is the way I wanted to be looked at, and the fact that we rode motorcycles, we're riders. End quote. Believe it or not, for as long as they've been around, this is their first time in the media spotlight. Quote, being a black entity, we've never done anything wrong to get into the news. We don't characterize ourselves as the bad guys. We are blessed to not have ever lost a member through violence. We've never had any beefs with any other club across the country. 
so we get lost in the shuffle if we don't make the news. End quote. There's Chico, Junebug, Maintenance, Doughboy, Otto, Shotgun, and Fat Man. Six of the nearly 50 active members from all walks of life and professions. Nicknames are a part of the culture, but helping others is the core of their mission. There is also a certain criteria for members. Black Harleys. Isaac Chico Griffin is the founder and national commander. He started the club after coming home from the Vietnam War. In their heyday, there were talks. They were the talk of the town. Pardon me. Fond memories of yesteryear, when their clubhouse was the spot for fun, food, and fellowship. Quote, Basically, this club grew from just five guys to two hundred right here in Savannah, Georgia. To this day, I don't think there's a club in this country that has those numbers in one chapter. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777. Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you articles of interest from a variety of sources. This one is being recorded for the listening week that begins February 3rd. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. First, an article from the New York Times that was published in February 2021, written by Veronica Chambers, how Negro History Week became Black History Month and why it matters now. Black History Month has been celebrated in the United States for close to 100 years. But what it is exactly and how did it begin? In the years after Reconstruction, campaigning for the importance of black history and doing the scholarly work of creating the canon was a cornerstone of civil rights work for leaders like Carter G. Woodson, Martha Jones, a professor of history at Johns Hopkins University, and the Society of Black Alumni presidential professor, explained this way. These are men, like Woodson, who were trained formally and credentialed in the ways that all intellectuals and thought leaders of the early 20th century were trained at Harvard and places like that. But in order to make the argument, in order to make the claim about black genius, about black excellence, you have to build the space in which to do that. There is no room. This is how they built the room. As an historical timeline follows. 1895. On February 20th, Frederick Douglass, the most powerful civil rights advocate of his era, dies. Douglas collapsed after attending a meeting with suffragists, including his friend Susan B. Anthony. A lifelong supporter of women's rights, Douglas was among the 32 men who signed the Declaration of Sentiments at Seneca Falls, New York. He once said, quote, When I ran away from slavery, it was for myself. When I advocated emancipation, it was for my people. But when I stood up for the rights of women... Self was out of the question, 
and I found a little nobility in the act. Pardon me, in the act, end quote. There's a photo of him, or an artistic drawing of him with the caption, Did you know, Douglas was such an animated storyteller that when he collapsed, his wife thought it was part of the story he was telling her about his day with the suffragists. 1897. Washington, D.C. schools begin to celebrate what becomes known as Douglas Day. On January 12, 1897, Mary Church Terrell, an educator and community activist, proposed the idea of a school holiday to celebrate Frederick Douglass's life at a school board meeting for the Washington area, quote, colored schools. The school board agreed to set aside the afternoon of February 14, 1897, the date Douglas celebrated as his birthday, parentheses, he had been born enslaved and did not know the exact date of birth. For students to learn about his life, writings, and teachings, pardon me, his life, writing, and speeches. Here's another artistic drawing. <clears throat> Did you know Terrell was an animal lover, and she and her husband had a beloved dog named Nogi? For years, she lobbied the Board of Education to set aside a day when Washington students would be taught and shown the importance of being kind to animals. Animal Day, as she called it, never passed. 1915. Carter G. Woodson, the scholar known now as the father of black history, was inspired to take his work nationwide. Carter G. Woodson was born in 1875, the son of former enslaved people. He worked as a coal miner before receiving his master's at the University of Chicago, and he was the second African-American to receive a Ph.D. at Harvard. Parentheses, after W.E.B. Du Bois. In the summer of 1915, Dr. Woodson attended the Lincoln Jubilee celebration commemorating the 50th anniversary of emancipation in Chicago, featuring exhibitions that highlighted African-Americans' recent accomplishments, after seeing the thousands of people who attended from across the country, Dr. Woodson was inspired to do more in the spirit of honoring black history and heritage. Another Did You Know? According to an article in The Broad Axe, a weekly black newspaper in Chicago, the Jubilee celebration included musical performances, garment and furniture making, and a 16-foot statue of Abraham Lincoln. 1924. The Movement for Black History Grows On September 9, 1915, Dr. Woodson formed the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, ASNLH, an organization to promote the scientific study of black life and history. Parentheses. Today, the organization is known as the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, going by ASALH. In 1916, the Association established the Journal of Negro History, the first scholarly journal that published researchers' findings on the historical achievements of black individuals. Dr. Woodson believed that, quote, if a race has no history, 
if it has no worthwhile tradition, it becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world, and it stands in danger of being exterminated. End quote. To that end, he asked his Omega Psi fraternity brothers to join him in the work of spreading the importance of black history. The Omega Psi fraternity created Negro History and Literature Week in 1924, but Dr. Woodson had even greater aspirations for Negro history to become a significant part of the culture across the country. Did you know Dr. Woodson's best-known book, The Miseducation of the Negro?, inspired the title of the groundbreaking album, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. 1926. In the 1920s, a decade of hope and possibility for black Americans, Negro History Week begins. Dr. Woodson believed deeply that a celebration of black history would have lasting impact on future generations of leaders. As he reportedly told an audience of Hampton University students, quote, We are going back to that beautiful history, and it is going to inspire us to greater achievements. End quote. Determined to lead the charge to study that history, Dr. Woodson announced the first Negro History Week in February 1926. He chose February because it was the month in which both Lincoln and Douglas were born. After Lincoln's assassination, his birthday, February 12th, had been celebrated by black Americans and Republicans. Douglas Day, which was observed on February 14th, had grown in popularity since Mary Church Terrell had started it in Washington in 1897. Dr. Woodson saw Negro History Week as a way to expand the celebration of these two men and encourage Americans to study the little-known history of an entire people. Did you know, every year since 1928, Negro History Week, and later Black History Month, has centered on a theme. This year's theme is the Black Family, Representation, Identity, and Diversity. Oh, on a reader's note, that would be for 19, I mean for 2021 year. Continuing, 1932, growing alongside the Harlem Renaissance, Negro History Week uses every platform at its disposal to spread its message. Dr. Woodson and his colleagues set an ambitious agenda for Negro History Week. They provided a K-12 teaching curriculum with photos, lesson plans, and posters with important dates and biographical information. In an article published in 1932 titled Negro History Week, The Sixth Year, Dr. Woodson noted that some white schools were participating in the Negro History Week curriculums and that this had improved race relations. He and his colleagues also engaged the community at large with historical performances, banquets, lectures, breakfasts, beauty pageants, and parades. L.D. Reddick, an historian, heard the father of Negro history speak as a child in his hometown, Jacksonville, Florida, Everything about Dr. Woodson, he remembered, produced an effect that was, quote, electric. As Mr. Reddick wrote, quote, he handled himself well upon the platform, I thought, moving about very much like a skilled boxer, never hurried, never faltering, sparring skillfully for openings, driving his blows deftly, end quote. 
Mr. Reddick, who would later collaborate with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on his book about the Montgomery bus boycotts, marveled that Dr. Woodson was, quote, easily the most impressive speaker that I have ever heard up to that time in my life, end quote. Did you know, for rural schools, Dr. Woodson eventually introduced special kits for Negro History Week that could include a list of suggested reading material, speeches by and photos of famous African Americans, and a play about black history. Skipping to 1970, after gaining in renown, the Negro History Week becomes Negro History Month and then Black History Month. Dr. Woodson lectured often in West Virginia, and citizens in that state began celebrating what they called Negro History Month in the 1940s. Dr. Woodson's organization, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, formed branches across the country, and Negro history clubs began to appear in high schools. By the time Dr. Woodson died in 1950, mayors across the country supported Negro History Week, in the 1960s, growing political consciousness among black college students led to a push for more opportunities to study black history. In February 1969, students and educators at Kent State University proposed the first Black History Month and celebrated it in February 1970. 1976, President Gerald Ford supports Black History Month as an important element of the nation's Bicentennial Celebrations. In October 1974, just months after assuming the presidency, following the resignation of Richard Nixon, Ford met with civil rights leaders including Vernon Jordan, Bayard Rustin, Dorothy Hyde, and Jesse Jackson. As the New York Times reported, the leaders were looking for the president to, quote, make a ringing affirmation, pardon me, that's make a ringing reaffirmation, of the nation's commitment to racial justice and moral leadership, end quote. Less than two years later, in February 1976, Ford did just that. Drawing on the patriotic significance of the Bicentennial, he issued a statement on the importance of Black History Month to all Americans. Quote, the last quarter century has finally witnessed significant strides in the full integration of black people into every area of national life, he said. In celebrating Black History Month, we can take satisfaction from this recent progress in the realization of the ideal envisioned by our founding fathers. But even more than this, we can seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. End quote. 2021. Every president since Ronald Reagan has issued a Black History Month proclamation. In 2021, President Biden made his first proclamation in support of Black History Month, announcing, quote, We do so because the soul of our nation will be troubled as long as systemic racism is allowed to persist. It is corrosive, it is destructive, it is costly. We are not just morally deprived because of systemic racism. We are also less prosperous, less successful, and less secure as a nation. Why does Black History Month in particular and the study of black history overall still matter so much? 
Quoting, There's no question that history is and continues to be a battleground. The stories, pardon me, the origin stories that we tell matter a great deal for where we set the bar and how we set the bar going forward, noted Professor Jones of Johns Hopkins. He went on. So when you talk about people like Carter G. Woodson, these are men who knew that if you don't rewrite the history of Africans and people of African descent, if you don't rewrite the history of the United States through the lens of black history, if you don't make that record, and if you don't make that case, there are false stories that will expand and go toward rationalizing and perpetuating racism, exclusion, marginalization, and more. Next article comes from the Washington Post. It was originally published on January 28th. It is written by J. Michael Welton. America's oldest black town is threatened by floods and seeking a plan. On a blustery January afternoon in Princeville, North Carolina, about 35 citizens met with their mayor, elected commissioners, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in their new flood-resistant town hall, built in 2020. Across Main Street, elderly residents were climbing two flights of stairs to enter their senior center, raised 14 feet above ground level in 2021. A quarter mile away, the Tar River, Princeville's longtime nemesis, rolled on quietly north to south. The Tar and its latent forces were the reason for this meeting. Princeville, the oldest black chartered town in the United States, has suffered through at least nine hurricanes and floods since it was established at the end of the Civil War. They're only getting worse. In 1999, Hurricane Floyd breached the town's levee and left 10 feet of standing water for two weeks, destroying nearly 1,000 buildings. Floyd was followed in 2016 by Matthew, which again breached the levee and demolished half the town. Before Matthew, there were, this is in quotes, before Matthew, there were 2,300 households in Princeville and 1,592 after, said Glenda Knight, Princeville's town manager. Those who remain are determined lot. After Floyd, the federal government proposed turning the historic town into an uninhabited national park and moving its citizens to higher ground. Princeville's town commissioners were split on the proposal. The mayor broke the tie by voting against it. After every flood, some people do leave town, but most residents of the overwhelmingly black community are adamant about rebuilding. Quote, they say, this is who we are. This is sacred ground. Our forefathers shed blood, sweat, and tears here, said Princeville Mayor Bobby Jones. Which is why the meeting on January 4th was so tense. In 2016, Congress authorized a plan to extend the town's 1967 levy to protect against rising waters. Four years later, Congress appropriated $39.6 million to carry that out. Residents were determined to protect a place that not only was their home, but also a crucial piece of black history. But in June 2023... Representatives of the Army Corps met with town officials to share bad news. 
Revised modeling showed the new levee would threaten thousands of buildings across the river in Tarboro, as well as upstream and downstream as far as Greenville. The plan to save historic Princeville was no longer viable. The mayor and commissioners then had the unenviable task of informing Princeville citizens. Now at the January 4th meeting, they were telling the Army Corps how they felt. They were, one woman said, quote, sick and tired of being sick and tired and being scared every time there's a hurricane, end quote. Princeville was established in 1865 as Freedom Hill when a group of freed black people traveling from the Union Army to Tarboro settled across the river in a swampy flood plain. In 1885, the townspeople petitioned Congress to name the town after Turner Prince, a carpenter who had built many of its structures. Congress had wanted to name it after the recently assassinated President James Garfield. The residents prevailed. By then, the town had grown from around 25 people to nearly 300, according to North Carolina historian Kelsey Dew, and new residents kept arriving. She said, quote, There was the attraction of an independent black town where people were welcome. Black people in Princeville had an advantage over their counterparts across the river. They could vote for mayor, while black residents of majority white Tarboro weren't allowed to vote at all. Dew said, quote, and blacks could shop any time, not just on Sunday. That was different from Tarboro. End quote. But the early 20th century saw a rise in white supremacy and racial hatred in the region, and a rise in the Tar River as well. A major flood hit Princeville in 1919, and the population dropped as people moved to East Tarboro, which needed laborers. More residents came in the next few decades, but so did more floods. After Hurricane Hazel roared through in 1954, the Army Corps got involved and built the levee that was completed in 1967. Dew said, After the levee was built, there was a major rise in population because there was security. Princeville would thrive over time, with as many as 35 black-owned businesses though that number declined after integration in the 1960s allowed black Princeville residents to patronize white-owned stores and businesses across the river. Since he was elected mayor in 2013, Jones has worked to keep 15 to 20 black-owned businesses and their tax base in town. About 2,000 people now live in Princeville. 90% are black, 7% are Hispanic, and 3% are white. In 2017, a year after Hurricane Matthew, Gavin Smith, then a professor of city and regional planning at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and director of the Department of Homeland Security's Coastal Resilience Center of Excellence, organized a five-day design workshop for the town, inviting planners, engineers, and architects from across the country. The goal was to develop a plan for Princeville that was flood-resistant, safe, and welcoming, including a new 53-acre tract of land, tract, pardon me, tract of land outside the floodplain, where essential services would move. Jones said, quote, from a planning perspective, it would mitigate the risk while celebrating the history, end quote. Smaller projects came out of the workshop, too, including a heritage trail to emphasize the town's history 
and a mobile history museum that could be taken to other communities to tell the Princeville story. A temporary replacement for a visitor center and museum wiped out by floods from Floyd and Matthew. The North Carolina State University Coastal Dynamics Design Lab, which initiated the projects, quote, prioritized local values and localized environmental interventions for community resilience that the town itself could control, end quote, as it waited for the Army Corps' intervention said the lab's director, Andrew Fox. State funds have enabled one existing home to be elevated on stilts, while the Federal Emergency Management Agency committed funds to raise 22 more on concrete blocks. Six homeowners within town limits have opted for buyouts and demolition from FEMA and the North Carolina Office of Recovery and Resiliency, NCOR, according to Knight, the town manager. That leaves checkerboard conditions where some parcels of land are vacant, said Smith, now a professor of landscape architecture and environmental planning at North Carolina State. He said it tears apart the physical conditions of the community, but it also, oper- pardon me, it also offers opportunities. Quote, On a half-acre site where two homes were demolished, The Conservation Trust for North Carolina raised $30,000 to create a community garden that will be planted in March, a boon for a town that's become a food desert in recent years. Meanwhile, INCOR will use $850,000 in funding from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to repair damaged parts of the levee and four floodgates washed out during Matthew. Tracy Colores, INCOR's Community Development Director, hopes to start construction this summer. That will restore basic protection from normal elevated water levels from the river, but not from hurricanes. She said, quote, The current system does not provide hurricane-induced flooding protection from storms like Floyd and Matthew. Incor has pledged $3.5 million for infrastructure in the 53-acre parcel outside of the floodplain. A FEMA grant will fund construction of a fire station, town hall an annex, pardon me, and other facilities on that parcel, and a farmer's market is scheduled to open there in March. Pending environmental approval, INCOR will also fund construction of 50 public housing units there. All of this stems from a push by citizens determined to save their heritage in their town. Kalora said, quote, The image I see is people leaning in. Nobody is sitting back and saying, You need to do this for us. It's everybody working together to make something happen. Princeville citizens were disappointed by the Army Corps' decision to abandon the Levy extension, pardon me, but the reality is that the town is sited on a difficult 90-degree bend in the Tar River. The Corps doesn't build projects for 500 or 100, pardon me, for 500 or 1,000-year storms like Floyd, even if they're becoming more common. It's a very tough, complex problem to solve, said Army Corps spokesman Dave Connolly. He went on, just look at the terrain and you'll see that. But Princeville holds one more backup plan. In 2019, it acquired 88 more acres adjacent to its 53 acres outside of the floodplain. Now a town known for its past has to figure out how to use that land for its future. Next article comes from... Nice news, one of my sources, and it was posted January 31st. Gordon Parks, 
How Life Magazine's first black staff photographer shed light on social justice with expressive images. This author is Rebecca Brandis. In 1948, six years before the civil rights movement would officially begin, Gordon Parks became Life Magazine's first black staff photographer. During his nearly three decades with the publication, he made an indelible impression not only on its glossy pages, but also on American society as a whole. Parks produced powerful photo essays that drew the public's attention to issues like segregation and racism, but the artist was neither expected nor felt compelled to only chronicle topics connected to the color of his skin. He would often say that there was no special black man's corner for him there, according to Life. Indeed, he was also a fashion photographer and felt as comfortable snapping shots of celebrities as he did scenes related to social justice. In addition to shooting still images, he was also a filmmaker, directing the iconic 1971 film Shaft, as well as an author, musician, painter, and composer. And each of his artistic pursuits served as conduits for his humanitarianism and activism. Parks was born into poverty in Fort Scott, Kansas in 1912, the youngest of 15 children. He gravitated toward photography early on, intrigued by images of migrant workers he saw in a magazine while he was working as a waiter in a railway car. Quote, I saw that the camera could be a weapon against poverty, against racism, against all sorts of social wrongs, he told an interviewer in 1999. According to the New York Times, he went on, quote, I knew at that point I had to have a camera. He purchased his first one at a pawn shop in 1938 and with no professional training, honed his skill to such an extent that at age 29, he won the Julius Rosenwald Fellowship. He was awarded $1,800, which is the equivalent of around 35000 today, to support his burgeoning career. The grant helped him make his way to Washington, D.C., where he began working in the photography section of the Farm Security Administration and then the Office of War Information. With these agencies, he was able to, quote, break the color line in professional photography while creating striking images that shed light on the, quote, social and economic impact of poverty, racism, and other forms of discrimination. And that quote is according to the Gordon Parks Foundation. One of his most iconic photos taken in 1942 and titled American Gothic features Ella Watson, a cleaning woman who worked for the government. Echoing the famous 1930 painting by Grant Wood, she stoically holds a broom and a mop. The one they're referring to by Grant Wood would be the farmer and his wife standing outside holding pitchforks. Quote, I had experienced a kind of bigotry and discrimination here that I never expected to experience. At first, I asked Ella Watson about her life. What was it like? And it was so disastrous that I felt that I must photograph this woman in a way that would make me feel or make the public feel about what Washington, D.C. was in 1942, Parks said of the shot, according to the Minneapolis Institute of Heart, Art, pardon me, and he went on, quote, So I put her before the American flag, 
with a broom in one hand and a mop in the other, and I said, American Gothic. That's how I felt at the moment. The image is currently on display at the Harrison Photography Gallery in Minneapolis through June 2024. In 1944, Parks left his position with the Office of War Information to work on the Standard Oil Company's long-running documentary photo project. Around the same time, he was making a name for himself by freelancing for various publications, namely Glamour, Ebony, and Vogue. Before the end of the decade, he would pitch his first photo essay to Life magazine. That story featured on the gang's Oh, pardon me, a story focused on the gangs running rampant in Harlem in New York City. To ensure he had the inside scoop, he befriended a member of one of the gangs. Accompanied by the young man, just 17 years old, Parks snapped stunning, expressive pictures of both the brutality and humanity he witnessed. The resulting images, a collection published in 1948 called Harlem Gang Leader, impressed editors so much that they offered him a position as a staff photographer. Parks continued to shoot for life until 1972, the same year the magazine discontinued as a weekly publication. But he didn't stop creating. He published memoirs, novels, and poetry, directed films, and wrote the music for a 1989 ballet titled Martin, about the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., In 1988, he was awarded the National Medal of Arts by President Ronald Reagan, and though he'd never finished high school, he received more than 50 honorary doctorates from colleges and universities. He continued evolving his various art forms until his death at age 93 in 2006, and his work continues to be exhibited decades later. Next article comes from The Atlantic and was published February 1st for the March issue, actually, but published online February 1st, and our author is Van R. Newkirk II. Also on photographs, Lost Photographs of Black America, a trove of images from the 1960s and 70s discovered in a Swedish bank vault Offer new perspectives on the past and the present. Ernest Cole was born in 1940 to a black family in the Erstrust Township near Pretoria, South Africa. As a child, he witnessed the formalization of the apartheid regime. When he was a teenager, he began working for Drum, a South African magazine geared toward black readers. He later changed the spelling of his surname from K-O-L-E to C-O-L-E, which, along with straightening his hair, helped reclassify him as, quote, colored, a formal designation that gave him more freedom of movement in that country's calcifying racial hierarchy. He became one of South Africa's first black freelance photographers, earning the ire of apartheid enforcers by capturing the human costs of the regime. But Cole wanted to have a wider reach, and in 1976 he arrived in the United States, having smuggled enough photos out of South Africa to publish a book, House of Bondage, introduced many people around the world to the horrors of apartheid. Those images of malnutrition and ritual humiliation 
were also the last he'd take of his country. He was soon banned from South Africa, and after sojourns in Sweden, he faded into obscurity on the streets of New York City. Cole, who died in exile in 1990, never published another book. Then, in 2017, a member of Cole's family was mysteriously invited to Stockholm at the behest of a Swedish bank. There, in three safety deposit boxes, were tens of thousands of negatives, many taken during Cole's years in America. The True America, released by Aperture in January, showcases this collection, much of which had not been previously published. Cole did not leave behind detailed information about these photos, which means that today's viewers must infer from context what they depict. We do know that the American series began with the grant he received from the Ford Foundation to essentially replicate his work on apartheid in the urban ghettos and on the rural plantations that dominated black American life. He must have been ambivalent about the project. Cole had come to America hoping to broaden his portfolio, and he did not want to be pigeonholed as someone who captured only oppression. Still, there's an insurgent air about this collection. In the black communities Cole visited in the late 1960s and early 70s, he found people smiling, lounging, dancing, and worshiping. At a time when interracial marriage was intensely controversial, he captured a black man and a white woman embracing on a New York subway. Cole paid attention to the media that black people created and consumed. Newspapers from the Nation of Islam, ads for ultra-sheen cream satin press, adult magazines. He covered major historical events, traveling to Lowndes County, Alabama, during its famed freedom struggle, and to the funeral of Martin Luther King Jr. in Atlanta on April 9, 1968. His photographs are inversions of the authoritative images ingrained in our collective memory from these moments. Cole's world is front porches and vanity plates and processed hair. History from below. Cole saw South African apartheid and American institutional racism in their full power, with all of their teeth. These systems were intended to be eternal machines, creating and recreating order for as long as each nation lasted. But Cole also bore witness to the possibility of a different outcome. Through the stoic faces of black South African miners and the signs of Gavarites on parade in New York, pardon me, that's Garveyites, pardon me, Garveyites on parade in New York, he documented the people who dreamed otherwise. Masterpieces find their moment, and the rediscovery of these photographs comes at a time when they are once again sorely needed. The historical memory of slavery and Jim Crow is under threat in America. And globally, the far right agitates for a return to white domination. The true America as a belated bookend to House of Bondage, reinforces the interconnectedness of all forms of state oppression and reminds us that the present always has to do with the past. Next article from the New York Times from their series on Black History Month. 
America's oldest park ranger is only her latest chapter. Betty Reed Soskin has fought to ensure that American history includes the stories that get overlooked. As she turns 100, few stories have been more remarkable than hers. This is written by Jennifer Schusler. This also was published in 2021, it seems here, although they're republishing it for this year's um, special that they're doing. Pardon me. The Rosie the Riveter slash World War II Homefront National Historic Park, which sprawls across the former shipyards in Richmond, California, on the northeast edge of San Francisco Bay, tells the enormous story of the largest wartime mobilization in American history and the sweeping social change it sparked. Visitors can climb aboard an enormous victory ship, one of more than 70 vessel, 700, pardon me, 700 vessels produced in Richmond, and in the gift shop, pick up swag emblazoned with the iconic image of the red handkerchief Rosie herself, arm flexed up with we-can-do-it bravado. But for many, that park is synonymous with another woman, Betty. Betty Reed Soskin, who turns 100 on September 22nd in 2021, is the oldest active ranger in the National Park Service. Over the past decade and a half, she has become both an icon of the service and an unlikely celebrity, drawing overflow crowds to talks and a steady stream of media interviewers eager for the eloquent words of an indomitable five-feet-three-inch great-grandmother once described by a colleague as, quote, sort of like Betty Davis, Angela Davis, and Yoda, all rolled into one. She has been photographed by Annie Leibowitz, interviewed by Anderson Cooper, and invited to the Obama White House, quote, where she introduced the president at the Christmas tree lighting in 2015. And as she approaches her centennial birthday, she has, to put it mildly, persisted. She suffered a stroke in 2019, but has since resumed her ranger talks by video conference, and even narrated a commercial for the North Face Clothing Company, which dropped in July of 2021. Miss Soskin herself seems still seems a bit bewildered by all of that. As she put it during one of her recent interviews, gesturing toward a wall covered with framed citations and honors in her comfortably overstuffed apartment in the Richmond Hills, she said, I don't have any sense of being that important. Adjusting her tiny frame in her huge armchair, she went on, the only thing she has ever tried to do, she said, is to tell the truth. Miss Oskin became a park ranger in her 80s, almost by accident. In 2000, she was working as a field representative for a California state legislator who asked her to sit in on some early planning meetings for the park, which had just been authorized by Congress the half-million black women who worked in home-front jobs during World War II included some who worked as welders and riveters. At her first meeting, she blurted out that she had a love-hate relationship with the Rosie the Riveter icon, which she saw as telling a white woman's story. During the war, she worked as a file clerk in a segregated unit of the historically all-white Boilermakers Union, which had resisted demands to allow